0: Welcome to Elevate Louisiana's Engage videocast. Elevate Louisiana was founded in 2020 to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Welcome to Elevate Louisiana's roundtable, Decision Louisiana, the tax changes on the November ballot. I'm Julie Stokes, President and CEO of Elevate Louisiana, as well as your host and moderator for today's discussion. So first, I'd like to go ahead and welcome our panelists. Um, First up, I have Greg Albrecht, who is currently serving in his last few months. And we're all kind of sad about that, but I bet you he's not before he retires (laughs) as chief economist with the Louisiana Legislative Fiscal Office. In that office, Greg's in charge of the fiscal notes for all of the underlying legislation for these constitutional amendments. And he's written a comprehensive report on amendment number two. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in the coming hour. Uh, Jason DeQueer, who's the co-owner and partner in Advanced Consulting. And Jason's just been an integral part of crafting legislation with the members of the Louisiana legislature. And they've really come to rely on him for expert advice. And then finally, we also have in policy roles, Stephen Procopio, who is the policy director and congratulations on this, but incoming president of the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana. Um, We're very excited um, for you in that role. And uh, PAR is a group that has long advised that Louisiana consider adopting some of the underlying policies and has really studied those policies in great depth. And finally, we have Jan Moeller, who is the executive executive director of the Louisiana Budget Project. And the Budget Project is a group that came out with a report that highlights different sort of findings that they see as underlying problems in Louisiana, Um, you know, with poverty and with our... our our education and in in different things in Louisiana and concerns that this legislation doesn't solve those immediate needs. Of course, in my work in the Louisiana legislature, I've really focused heavily on tax policy and found that these kind of changes um, that Louisianans will be voting on in the polls on November 13th are largely positive moves that can move the needle for the state But of course, as the particular sausage gets made, being the legislation that goes into this ballot proposal, uh, and we end up knowing the full plan of the changes, we get an opportunity to really think through what's being proposed here. And that's what we're gonna do today. As you can see in our first slide, our Louisiana, business environment or business tax ranking isn't very high. You know, we're at 42, despite having relatively low tax burdens on businesses. As you can see, though, in the next slide, um, a big reason for that ranking is our near 50th ranking on sales tax structure. Um, There were actually recent times when I joked and said that Louisiana was ranked 50th but probably should have been ranked behind many third world countries. (laughs) But thankfully, there have been improvements over the last few years. Um, So at least we're at 49th, but that's not where we wanna be. And what I was hoping to do is to get on this next slide, a little explanation from Jason um, about our near 50th ranking and what is our structure like now, as you can see on the slide, that gives us that ranking.
1: Yeah, no. Well, thank you, Julie, and, and appreciate uh, the opportunity to be with you and all the work that you've done, both as a as a former legislator as well as uh, as, as leading Elevate. I also want to uh, recognize my, my, my fellow panelists who I've uh, got the utmost respect for and have had the opportunity to work with them uh, over the years. And congratulations to both Stephen and Greg. Greg, obviously. Uh, a staple down at the Capitol, and does a yeoman's job with fiscal notes and the amount of stuff he has to endure and then Stephen becoming the next next president of par and obviously Jan will continue to figure this thing out while uh while, while Greg goes off into the into the greener pastures but but what you see up here is really um you know you're not going to find this in a in a textbook or anything like that uh, uh but this is uh, I received a request for somebody to say, can you can you diagram for me because I'm unfamiliar, kind of what our sales tax system looks like in Louisiana, and this has progressed over the years. It, if you, it really just started, uh, Julie, with the first two boxes to your left uh, that we that we're most familiar with, and by virtue of the Constitution, uh, the Department of Revenue collects the state sales tax, and then you have local collectors. Uh, in each of the parishes. There's one parish, Cameron, that does not have a sales tax. And those are the two main collectors. Uh, uh, local collectors, unlike many other states or most other states, except for one really, um, uh, are not the centralized collector. It, it's normally one entity. Historically, it's the Department of Revenue, and taxes are collected from, from both local and the state through one entity. Businesses interact with one entity. They remit it to that entity and it's all uh, then flows out to both local and, and the state, state coffers. But over the years, as we begin to transact differently in today's economy, our system just is not set up uh, to capture the way that sales tax is, is, is historically or has historically been uh, transacted. And so as a result, We've kind of been shuffling and and trying to adapt and do what we can, uh, but we, we keep running into this constitutional hurdle in terms of what we can do and what we can't do to build out a new system that's more modern without interfering with the Constitution. As a result, you see the two boxes to your right, where you now have what was recently created, and Julie, I know you worked a lot on this, the uniform local sales tax board. That was to try to begin to harmonize some of the local tax collection and administration, um, they could do some rulemaking, some opinions, some private letter rules, multi parish. But again, all of that has to be optional. Um, it is not mandated. And the ULSTB, as much as they may want to try to centralize some of the process for local collectors, you can't mandate it because the Constitution simply says each parish has its autonomy to administer the the, the local tax code, how they see it. So although it's a a good step and a great step in the right direction, uh, it's not an absolute requirement. And then obviously, as as I mentioned, we're, we're transacting differently. You have online sales, remote sales. You had a Supreme Court case Wayfair that came out that basically said, if you don't have a simplified system or a system that is at least meets the test in the Wayfair case, then out-of-state collectors or out-of-state retailers are, do not have an obligation to collect or remit to your state. Well, guess what? We were not positioned and poised to meet that test. So instead of reforming the whole system, we reformed a box of the system just for remote sales only. And we're kind of hoping and praying right now that that remote sales commission meets the Wayfair standard. We don't know. It hasn't been legally tested. But that remote sales commission that you see on the right is only for out-of-state businesses and it's only for out-of-state businesses that don't have a physical nexus that have remote sales. So you can see now uh, we have four different entities that are responsible for the administration of sales tax. And if we don't reform the system as a whole, we're just gonna keep building out little boxes and it's gonna make it more complicated. For the Louisiana business, you see at the bottom, the reason you see all those arrows, he's got to figure out how to navigate all of that. Am I an in-state business? Do I go to a local collector? If so, am I dealing with a school board, a commission, a police jury, a sheriff, a municipality? If I have a state issue, i got to go to the Department of Revenue. If I need a local opinion, do I go to the ULSTB or do I go to my local collector? And then, oh, by the way, do I fall under any of all of the rules that have been recently created such that I may have some obligation or responsibility to the Remote Sales Commission? The whole idea, and when we formed the, the, the study group that some of you all were on, we brought all the stakeholders together, businesses, the state, local collectors, to try to come up with a solution such that Louisiana will have a more modernized and and, and simplistic system and one that ensures the money we collect, we keep. That's important, we keep it in the state coffers, we keep it in the local coffers because it meets all of the legality tests. And so we did that and all 19 of the stakeholders including collectors agreed that we needed a constitutional amendment that would allow us to build out a centralized and streamlined system. That's really what constitutional amendment number one does. It allows us to build this system out however we would like to design it such that uh, we can have a modern system and one that uh, will meet all of the tests that are, that are in Wayfair and essentially that's what the voters will be voting on, Julie, on November 13th, uh, is that constitutional
0: change. Right. So, so, Jason, before I switch over to Stephen, because I'd like to see if Stephen is willing to, to tell us a little bit about how the new entity will be formed, and I'll, I'll move on to the next slide so that he can start thinking about that. But um, how many states have what we talk about here, which is decentralized sales tax? Um, we call it decentralized sales tax collection. In most states, the the state collects and just sends the money to the local governments. How many states are like us, Jason?
1: Yeah. Well, right now you only have Colorado that has a similar home rule charter. They're trying to work on uh, revising their system as well, and are constantly met with legal challenge. And then you have Alaska, and I don't want to offend anybody on here, but You know, Alaska is very, very unique, and I don't really count Alaska just because 90% of their revenues are all oil and gas uh, revenues, and and, and sales tax is a very, very small fraction, whereas here, you know, sales tax is is one of the leading revenue sources in kind of our three-legged stool. Exactly.
0: So, um, you know, Stephen, could you tell us a little bit about how this new structure is laid out?
2: Absolutely. I'm trying to work through all the acronyms that we have up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you can see there's, I guess there's two different colors. Uh, it's whether a group is appointed by the state or they're appointed by a group that represents local entities. And so you have a four and four match. Uh, so you have for the state appointees, you have that's LDR, which would be the Louisiana Department of Revenue. That's the state department. There'd be an appointment by the governor, uh, an appointment by, I don't know why LMA is difficult. Okay, now So I don't know why the colors
3: yeah. go-
1: I I think the colors were just so that they didn't all. I think they're just one color. Okay, it's a decorative thing. But but, but you're right. Department, governor, speaker, and president are sort of the the state and then the others. uh, School board, municipal, police, jury, and sheriff. That's right, Stephen. Sorry.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So so you have a four and four. uh, Now, uh, one thing to point out, just because they are appointed by the governor and the speaker or the the Senate uh, president, that does not necessarily mean they represent the state, that is someone that is appointed by the state, whereas the uh, four that represent the locals, those are being represented by, or being appointed by groups whose job it is to represent locals. Uh, so you have uh, at least an even four to four match. Uh, part of this reason for this composition is that uh, the locals, while acknowledging that this is a very complicated system uh, and it is onerous on businesses, especially in the age of the internet, where even if you're a mom and pop store, if you sell one thing online, that means anyone in any parish could buy it and you're gonna be subject to a lot of different um, reviews and audits. Uh, and, and that has in fact happened. Uh, so this way, the locals came and said, look, we would like to do this, um, but we need some sort of protection for us. And a large part of that was making sure the um, there was a balance in the commission uh, between the, the state and the local entities.
0: Right, and one of the interesting things that that I think they did to safeguard And put in rails so that there had to be a a pretty good um, unanimous verdict from these guys. um, In terms of you've got four people that could come from potentially business and the state and then you've got these four people that can come from local government. um, But don't the, uh, the, the the decisions that they reach have to be approved by two thirds of the panel which works out to six so they've actually got to negotiate and they really have to um, compromise is that right? Yeah I mean
1: that's the way that that it is set up and designed anytime you're talking about implementing major pieces of policy or wanting to go through the rule process um, it would require uh, a two-thirds and and that the the design there again Look, I, I, I want to be clear here that the design of this uh, was really brought by the local sales tax collector community, both at the revenue department, as well as local government. These are the things that they requested. And, re- and remember, this was unanimously approved uh, uh, from a commission that they all that they all sat on. And so these were some of the protections that they wanted. Uh, that one side wouldn't have a greater balance than, than the other, and that you would see a you, you see a two-thirds vote in two places, two-thirds by the commission uh, to enact any major policy change or to go through the rule promulgation process, as well as uh, the statutory piece that needs to be implemented. it would require a two-thirds vote by by the legislature. And again, we all know how difficult it is to reach a two-thirds on in both chambers. but those were the protections that local collector community and the state asked for and were compromised into the legislation
0: well and, and along those same lines you know I know that there's some out there in the community that are concerned about the unanswered structural questions that there's still things that need to be decided by the group there's um, pieces that need to move in statute um, and you know I'd like to to ask Jan Moller specifically because I know that there's also along with those concerns some concerns over local government being able to receive its funding on time um, and just um, if Jan if you could share with us a little of those concerns uh,
4: well I think that's that, that's right uh, representative Stopes and, and thanks for having me on uh let me say that you know the the budget project has not really been involved in these discussions uh very much at all you know our mission is to look out for policy change that helps low and moderate income families and and the folks who are really going to be affected by this of course are mostly the business uh community the people who collect and remit sales taxes so I don't hold myself out as an expert. I think the concerns that I've heard from some locals, and and particularly Orleans Parish, is whether they will have immediate access to their sales tax revenue um, the way they do now. Um, I think there's, you know, a concern about, uh, you know, this is a state that has preempted a lot of local decision-making on on issues from, you know, minimum wage and and our policies and and a lot of other policies. So so I think there's a concern that this is another way of shifting power from uh, local government to state government. And there's also a concern that this sets up a framework, a commission, but that there is implementation language that the legislature still has to pass. And I think there was a hope that that this would be uh, that 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 essentially, if you vote for this, then uh, you, are you handing uh, are you handing the legislature a blank check, and what will come of that um, and there's also the underscoring of you know there's been some some um, votes at the bond commission recently where uh you know funding for for the superdome upgrades and other things have been kind of withheld, and so you know uh, some would call that paranoia, but uh it 's not paranoia if they really are out to get you i 'm not saying that they are but but i'm i 'm saying those are some of the concerns that you hear from from some locals. But again, this is not uh, necessarily the budget project fight.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, just to be clear, you know, when we have this policy forum, you know, one of our objectives is to hear all sides of it, and and to let people kind of flesh that out. You know, so we dig into both perspectives, and I, I think you know, for Elevate, somewhat, we've come to the conclusion that because of that um, six vote requirement that it's going to be pretty difficult for them to do the kind of political moves that like a bond commission can do or even the legislature can do um, at times. Um, I I want to see, and we don't have much more time because I really think Amendment Number Two is a lot more complicated. But is there any feedback on what um, Jan just shared that anybody would like? To address? I, I would
1: just like to comment quickly and I know i talked to Jan at length and he called and, and, and wanted some of the history on this and we've been able but, but let me just I, I think it's important to to um uh, at least begin to uh you know just disc- give some information that these rumors and, and non-factual concerns okay and, and I'm not saying that Ron um Jan is raising them but I do hear them out there one the thought is that Louisiana is going to be able to sit on local collector money and it won't get to them. That is absolutely false and all you have to do is pick up the amendment and constitutional amendment and read it. I mean it says the tax monies received shall and at all times be and remain the property of the respecting taxing authority. So if you do anything to the contrary like what Jan was mentioning, you have just done something that would be unconstitutional if it passed. You can't change that by statute you can't change that by any other mechanism. The Constitution is the highest law on the land. And Julie, that was the number one thing that local collectors wanted to have in the amendment itself was that this money will forever and always be their money. So any statement out there uh, opposite of that is is, is is just false. Two, we're giving the legislature a blank check. No, we're not. This is a five page amendment. You can only do in that commission what the amendment and the Constitution allows for you to do. That's not a blank check. Even with a two-thirds vote, you can't enact a statute that would be uh, run afile of the Constitution. So that is not a blank check. And the commission spells out very clearly in D1, 2, and and 3, the only three things that the commission can do. So if the legislature wanted to try to do something outside of that, they cannot. And if anybody else or any other uh, uh, organization of the state wanted to try, they they can't because it's it's enshrined in in, in the constitution. So uh, these are all things that local governments asked to be put in the constitution. Otherwise they would not have unanimously endorsed this and it would not have received uh, the level of support and the number of votes that it did going through the process. So those things are just, just absolutely false based on the amendment. And the way that it's that it's that it's
0: written. Well and you can see I mean I can understand that's good to know um, and to know that those safeguards are in place and I think that there was a lot of concern out of Orleans parish when the bond commission you know the things happened in the bond commission a few months ago and I know Orleans is going to be turning out because they've got their municipal elections right now so I think those things are important to note and, and, um, and just one
1: other point, and I, and I promise I'm going to let y'all get on to number two, where I'll try to keep my, my mouth shut a little bit more. <laughs> There's this thought, again, that, that, that local government would be giving up power. Uh, I just need to address that. Right now, the collections for remote sales back to local government are housed with the Louisiana Department of Revenue. They're claiming that the state would now be in charge through this amendment, would now have their money and they'd have to wait for it to get dolled back to them. That's the way it's happening today. They are waiting on the state to send them their monies back that is collected through the Remote Sales Commission. If this commission is formed, you just put up the slide where Procopio went over. They now sit on the commission. They have four members on that commission and it leaves the Department of Revenue and goes to a commission and they're overseeing their own money. So they actually have more control and more ability to their own money than they would under today's system. So I, I it's, it's, just, those things are hard for me to, 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 to you know, just understand some of the, some of yeah. the things that are being said.
0: Well, it's, it's, I, I just think that there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of political things that happen, but I think that what you're saying um, is that we've, taken a lot of that ability to do those political maneuvers out of this piece of legislation so people can feel more comfortable with it and i want to i put on the um screen the um the language for the amendment um but you know everybody out there listening can know that there's a lot more in this bill as well. Um, in that research, you know, you can do that research online
3: to see it. Ju- Julie, can I throw in five cents worth here from the economist sure. perspective? Here? I was going to leave
0: you alone on this. Yeah, one.
3: Well, you know, one, <laughs> thing, one thing that hasn't, it's all, it seems to me it's all about sales tax administration. Yeah. Admittedly, we have a ridiculously complex system. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to those changes, but it's a five page constitutional amendment and, it doesn't seem to address, at least from an economist's perspective, the one of the big things that distinguishes us from other states about standardized rate, standardized base. You went to great lengths to, to, to attempt to look at that. And here we're talking about who collects and who audits and not a really big difference between us and other states is that we've got a, every jurisdiction can have its own base the state can manipulate that base without the locals having a whole lot of influence and we have a multitude of rates and this doesn't seem unless inside these general language that's an agenda right it doesn't seem to explicitly address that big distinguishing factor between us and other states
0: right it, 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 it doesn't um, and I couldn't appreciate that comment more because I always thought uh, in my own work that it would be so much more difficult to do this piece, which was to get the single collector board formed. I mean, I formed the state and local, um, ta- the, the, the ULSTB, and I formed the remote sellers, um, commission in legislation that I authored, but I always really thought that the thing that we could get done was making our base consistent and, um, you know, they kind of went out of order. For what I thought was politically feasible, so I, I think the next big body of work, because this isn't going to move us up on the rankings as much as we want without doing that sales tax base um, part. So um, I do wish that you would be around <laughs> when that starts. <laughs> oh no, up. I
3: don't want to mess with sales tax.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a hairy mess. I'll be honest. So. um, so I'm going to go ahead and move on um, to the um, income tax or I'm sorry yeah, to the to the personal income tax section of this, and just kind of talk about um, what's going on with this particular legislation and move to the next slide, which I'm getting to there we go so um, this legislation will actually um, the point of it really is to get federal deductibility out of our constitution we're one of very few states that allow that Um, and so we're trying to get federal deductibility out of the constitution and lower rates so the interesting thing about this uh, which is to me the ballot language which is what's on your screen (laughs) there's a lot of interesting things but the way that they've been able to word the ballot language is i mean it's a little tricky but it's brilliant too because what it actually says is do you support an amendment to lower the maximum allowable rate of income tax and to authorize the legislature to provide by law for a deduction for federal income tax paid? and in that you know most people will read that and go well heck yeah we can you know in essence lower taxes and um and we can also have the federal income tax deduction. And, and while that is true, that is actually what is happening there, because we didn't take federal deductibility being a requirement is no longer in there. But we basically are taking that out and making it something that we can put back if we want. Um, so, you know, for what it's worth, I mean, I think that with is worried about taxes as our voter base as our electorate in Louisiana is, that it is probably genius with being able to get this thing passed. Um, but at any rate, you know, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes here.
2: Hey, Julie, let me say real quick, this sure. is why I'd always encourage someone to, to read a guide to the Constitution. could be the PAR guide, but it could be Yons, or it could be one of many other organizations. But yeah, don't rely just on ballot language on this or any other
0: yeah yeah because it is kind of tricky um you know i wanted to talk about the fact that there is a lot going on here and that there are multiple bills that govern how this tax swap will function and just from a very high level um to talk about that there are actually three bills at work here and um if i could get jason to kind of address how these interplay and then want to move forward um to talk about individual and corporate separately so yeah, sure,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, first, obviously you have the constitutional amendment, CA number two, that was basically uh, HB uh, uh, 278, 395, but, but um, uh, basically the constitutional amendment that you just referred to, it, uh, it allows for the legislature to provide for the federal income tax deduction, meaning um, the legislature can decide whether we have one or we don't, it doesn't per se, remove it. Obviously, it was attached to a couple of of, of bills um, related to personal income tax as well as corporate income tax, and then also one related to the corporate franchise tax. And the important thing to note is all of the bills, the three bills you see here, plus the constitutional amendment uh, were were tied together. And so uh, if the constitutional amendment number two were to fail on November 13th, then all of the other lowering of the rates for both personal income tax and corporate income tax, as well as the phasing out of the franchise tax will not go into effect. So uh, you, you did get a couple of other other layers here with the constitutional amendment. Obviously on the personal income tax, you can see there we're lowering our rates from one to 1.85, 3.5, and 4.25. The 4.25 is just slightly lower than what it is in the Constitutional Amendment of 4.75. It just basically says that you cannot ever go higher than 4.75 and obviously no one would give up their federal income tax deduction uh, if the rate were to, to be at a, a, at a certain level because then obviously it'd be a, a, a significant tax increase on a, on a lot, of, lot, of, lot of folks. And then on the corporate income tax side, believe it or not, we've got five different rates and it would go to just three rates to make it a little bit more simple. And then you saw the bill tied to the franchise tax, where if you have less than $300,000 of capital in the state, uh, you would not pay franchise tax. That's removing it for all the small businesses. That's about 90% of the filers, But for the larger ones that have above 300000 of capital, you see a uh, you know, $0.25 cent reduction per 1000 uh, would that they would uh, continue to pay. And the hope is, is that um, you, know, you continue to phase this out like Mississippi and other states, which is a tax on capital. And obviously the last thing I'll, I'll say and, and I'll throw it over to Greg, Steven or John is that uh, the idea here where Greg really came into play in his group is that this was all done in a, in a revenue neutral fashion. The, the idea was not to, as it relates to the state of Louisiana, the idea was not to raise money for the state of Louisiana, or, uh, you know, cause the state to lose money, but the bills all working together uh, would hope to have somewhat of an even uh, budget impact. But the theme here is simplifying our system, less rates, less deductions. And the last thing that's very important is that we would no longer be tied to tax changes that are made in Congress. Right now, uh, when Congress acts, it automatically impacts our state budget. Uh, because of the federal income tax deduction, and when you remove or decouple from that, um, it, it it won't cause harm to our budget, or it won't impact our budget one way or the other as Congress makes changes. And that was a very important factor in that autonomy uh, here in here in Louisiana.
0: Right. So you know, and and when, one of the things is that when you look at states that allow for this federal income tax deduction. And this is on the individual level um, primarily, but you'll see that we are only one of three states that allow this. They have three other states that allow it partially, um, but you know we're definitely an anomaly in that. And also if you look at our rates, um, we tend to have one of the higher rates in the states in our, in our region. You know, certainly Arkansas is close. Uh, South Carolina is a little bit of an outlier there. Uh, North Carolina is a little bit lower. So in our region, we're one of the highest um, top rates in the in the in the area. But you know, I'd like to talk just a little bit first about, and I'd like to bounce this one over to Stephen. Um, you know, why do we believe that? federal deductibility is considered bad. And I think Jason already kind of talked about that a little bit. And, and why is one of the things that we're using this for is to get rid of franchise tax in some degree. And I know that Parr has always kind of talked about franchise tax. Why are these things considered to be bad?
2: Okay, so, so two things. Well, let's start with the, the federal deductibility. Just to back up for a second, any sort of core tax reform generally wants to eliminate deductions, uh, exemptions, exclusions, and lower the rates. This is sort of a core mantra of tax reform. It's sort of the simplification of the system, widening the base and lowering the rates. And that applies to anything. Then in particular for federal deductibility, just to back up for a second, um, and this is something probably your group is familiar with, but just in case, that is a deduction. So whatever you pay in um, federal taxes, and you can use that as a deduction on your state income taxes. <clears throat> so, and the concern is, is that as the federal taxes go up and down, uh, that affects the state budget. So for example, uh, if you believe that either the uh, Trump tax cuts or uh, the Biden administration increases taxes, so there'll be an increase in federal taxes. And if there's an increase in federal taxes, there'll be an increase in the deduction that state um, uh, Louisiana citizens can use, which would then lower the amount of revenue that the state takes in. So it's, it's in this case, uh, could be a reduction to the state budget. In other cases, it could be a boom to the state budget uh, because there'd be more money and that's actually some of what we saw before. So just the connection here means that you could have swings in what you're collecting, um, which might be a good or bad thing. It depends on which way it goes and your ideology. Uh, but it's probably, in, in general, uh, better to have the state of Louisiana control their own fate as much as possible. So that's that particular issue and so trying to decouple it in and of itself is a good thing on top of the fact that you just want to lower rates and try to have as wide a base and as few deductions as possible. On the franchise tax, that is different. All these other ones we're talking about, it's corporate income or individual income, which means how much income you make in a year is how much you're going to be taxed. The franchise tax is um, an asset tax. It's how much uh, do you have in assets which is possible you could have assets, but not make any money in a year, but yet still receive a tax, Uh, particularly for having large asset companies move in to the state, or try to recruit them or keep them, Um, or your startups that might have assets, but not make any profits for a year, it can be, uh, you know, the general thought is that it can be really pernicious in terms of economic development, trying to recruit companies. And so you basically have most states are either don't have this, they have it on a much lower level, or they're phasing it out. So, we're generally uh, one of the higher states uh, in terms of our franchise tax
1: level. And, and I just wanted to give a, a, a real time example of that. Stephen makes a great point. When we went through the pandemic here, and you had many businesses that were forced to shut their doors or could not generate revenue um, because of the policies in terms of. 're trying to prevent the spread that franchise tax bill still came due <laughs> and so without without revenue uh they, they still had to figure out a way it, it worked very much akin to a property tax and the reason you see the three hundred thousand dollar or less policy really came on the heels of, of the struggles that we saw small businesses have after after the after the pandemic yeah
0: so that makes sense so um one of the first things that i want to to talk about is the the personal income tax side of this. And you can see generally the changes that are made. Um, We would have the maximum rate of 4.75 set in the Constitution. Of course, the rate that we would actually employ would be this 4.25 in the beginning. Um, That 4.25 would be the lowest in the South and you can see it would be the fourth lowest in the nation. Now. There's a few states that don't have income tax. So that's disregarding them. I think there's nine of those. So those nine, we'd be the 13th lowest in the nation. Um, You can see that we, on the individual side, do a good job of, you know, decreasing the tax for every bracket. So that, you know, on your 2% bracket, which is barely enough money to live on, you know, I mean, it's not enough money to live on. So you know that, that that's not everybody's income, um, that they have to go into the next one almost. But that, you know, we decrease that from 2 to 1.85, the 4 goes to 3.5, and the 6 goes to that 4.25, and we get rid of um, the deductibility of federal income taxes, but we also get rid of eliminating the excess itemized deductions. Um, And, you know, that's one of the things that kind of piqued my curiosity on it, and Greg, I'm going to tell you, when Greg texted me a, a month or two ago to let me know that he had produced a report on this constitutional amendment and how it would impact taxes and I went and looked at it and I saw that it was 37 pages and it took me two, two weeks to crack that report open but oh my gosh Greg it's one of the best pieces of work I've honestly seen and thank you for that thoughtful analysis um, really the everybody in Louisiana should appreciate the the Lions or the the major task that went into that um One of the provisions that a lot of voters might not realize is that there's not just the change in federal income tax, but there is a change in how they can deduct their itemized deductions. You know, how does this legislation impact those that itemize versus those that claim the standard deduction federally?
3: Uh, Well, if you eliminate everybody, it loses their federal income tax deduction. For a lot of low-income people, that's not much of a deduction because the federal government doesn't actually have a lot of tax on the low end. It's very progressive. It's It's mostly at the high end, but it affects everybody. The elimination of excess itemized deduction, which is the total amount of your total federal itemized deductions minus your federal standard deduction, that little excess you can carry to your state return and deduct it as well. We are eliminating that in this proposal, except for those medical expenses that might exceed your federal standard deduction. And that's gonna be a very small number of people because you have to have substantial amount of medical expenses to even be able to itemize them. But for all practical purposes, we're eliminating excess itemized deduction. That's only affects about 7% of the state, people who file state returns. Used to be about 25% prior to the uh, uh, Trump tax changes, uh, in 20, late 2017, affecting 2018 forward. Uh, but by raising the standard deduction so much at the federal level, you just wiped it out. You wiped out excess itemized for most people who were taking it anyway. This bill will wipe out largely the rest of that. But what it means is, is that itemizers will have their base broadened by the elimination of federal income tax and they'll have their base broadened by the elimination of excess itemized deduction. And for many of those itemizers, the percentage increase in their tax base will be greater than the percentage decrease in their tax rate. And on the average, itemizers will pay more tax. Uh, On the average, non-itemizers, which is about 93% of the filers, will pay less state income tax. And it is revenue neutral from the state's aggregate fiscal perspective, as Jason was referring to, particularly the personal income tax portion, uh, because basically the uh, itemizers are gonna make up the losses from the non-itemizers. Um, and this table here is, one, is from some of my analysis that kind of looks at the average returns in these various rows and lets you realize that the analysis is actually deeper than this. I mean, I display about 30 rows here because that's what fits on a page for my <laughs> audience but behind this might be 300 rows of detailed income. So it's actually much more granular than this. Um, and it kind of shows you what what the estimated uh, effect on an average tax filer in each one of these federal adjusted gross income income rows are, and how many filers are in there, et cetera. And these are non Uh They make up the bulk of the returns, 93%. Now you're looking at a particular uh, All filing statuses combined. Here you're looking at itemizers. It's 125, little little under 125,000, and you can see on the aggregate they pay more. Uh, You do get, and you, Julie and I talked about this a little bit. You do get some anomalies in the rows, Uh, and particularly at the higher income level, the FIT deduction elimination will be very large, and so even some of those folks with no itemized no itemized deductions will will end up with a with a pretty big increase in their tax base, bigger than their rate cut. So at the very high end, you can have some people paying more tax, even if they're a non-itemizer. And the anomalies occur in here because this is actual tax return data. It is not confected data. It's not a made-up filer with X income, and which is going to say four kids or whatever. This is what's actually on the nearly 2 million returns that are filed in Louisiana in 2019 for the 2019 tax year. Uh, but I did go back and look at previous years and run the uh, the proposal scenario and you get the same kinds of anomalies at roughly the same rows. It's typical filing patterns and, and uh, by, by taxpayers in these various income levels. But the personal income tax is from a state fiscal perspective, largely revenue neutral. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody gets a tax cut or or, or pays the same tax. Most will get a tax cut. Some small numbers will get a tax increase.
0: Yeah, there were some other slides and I'm just going to try to pop onto that real quick. While you're looking
1: for that, Julie, Greg, I was just going to ask, you know, as you are able to look at the data and run the actual returns, I mean, one of the questions often is, is, you know, what, what, what does the profile of one of these itemizers look like? I mean, do you have any, 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 can you give a shed any more light on that? Or is there any kind of consistent I, patterns? I,
3: the profile is what is their federal adjusted gross income? That's the number one determining. That's how I'm stratifying the data by federal adjusted gross income. So. You know, my presumption is, is that a filer within, you know, $50,000 to $55,000 of federal AGI is largely the same kind of profile. They don't have to be, but for the most part, that's only a $5,000 income difference. But their, their number of deductions is in there. Uh, and I do, sh- the tables that I the provide in the report have it for just single filers, it also has it for joint filers and what are called qualifying widowers and it also has it for head of households, which would be a single person with a, ch- a dependent child for the most part. So I do break it down to some different sort of profile groups, but inside each one of those subsets, it's largely by federal adjusted gross income. And then I do distinguish between the itemizer subset and the non-itemizer subset, because that really made a lot of big difference between uh, filers are you an itemizer or not that's a big difference and i do distinguish that always have for all the years i've been generating uh this kind of analysis um so that's the fundamental profile uh, people yeah. who are schedule e filers are in there and for you know most people may not even know what that is but lots of adjustments to income you got pension income uh retirement income of state retirement income social security that's all in the mix as it shows up as it actually shows up on tax returns, so and the profiles are what people actually file. I mean, it's real filer data, and that's why the results come out the way they are, the way they do. Um,
0: yeah, and uh, you know, if 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 people that are uh, watching look on their screen and they'll see a link in the first paragraph or whatever of Greg's report that's accessible online, and I'm going to ask. Um, if if staff can drop that link into the chat uh because it is definitely worth a look now there's one other part about the individual taxes that I'd just like to ask Greg um to address and it it's on the issue of is this tax change regressive or progressive?
3: Um, you address it's that. <laughs> slightly progressive, slightly more progressive for the uh 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 itemizers uh really what i conclude in the report is that we're we're not really changing the world here uh we don't change the progressivity of the tax much i've got some little metrics in charts that look at that but it you know it's very small percentage changes in over in, in progressivity because we're because we're doing tax reform in the sense that we're broadening the base but also lowering the rates if you just did one of those components and not the other you'd get much more dramatic changes in the progressivity of the tax. And I look at it in a couple of ways across the entire distribution and also at the ends of the distribution, because I can, I was interested in it. I I don't want the 35 pages to scare people. A whole lot of that is just tables and pictures and tables and charts, not, you know, uh, the narrative. Uh, but I did look at it from a couple of different ways of what we were, you know, where, how much change to the overall distribution, of the burden where we do it and not a whole lot but if you're an itemizer on average you're probably going to pay more and if you're a non itemizer on average you're probably going to get a tax cut so that's a that's a big deal to the individual uh, but to yeah. the overall tax system we're not really doing a whole lot here
0: so you know i'd ask i'd like to turn to jan um first and then Stephen, just about you know their perspectives on it from a policy perspective and and you know, is it good policy? Is it bad policy? Um, you know, what, what do they think? Uh,
4: well, thanks, Julie. I, I appreciate the question. And and I think it, this was one that we wrestled with because there actually are some elements here that that we've been supportive of for a long time, namely getting rid of the federal income tax deduction. Um, ultimately, we came out against this for for some reasons that I'll Uh, explain. But let's start with, you know, kind of how we see the faults with the current tax structure. Because I think, you know, Stephen said, you know, tax reform is lowering rates and broadening the base. That's kind of the tax foundation uh, uh, way to look at the world. We look at, uh, we see two basic problems with our tax structure. Uh, number one, we don't, you know, does it raise enough money to support the needs of the state? And and to us, the answer is clearly no. Um, our teachers are underpaid. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, we don't have nearly enough money to uh, support our needs in early childhood education. Um, and uh, and so there's, even in a good budget cycle, and right now we have more revenue than we've had in a few years, we still aren't coming close to meeting our needs uh, Greg actually did a wonderful study on this a couple of years ago when he looked at, uh, you know, every single state and how much money the state government raise relative to the size of the economy. And uh, what it found was that, you know, Louisiana is not at the bottom, but we are consistently in the bottom third. So we don't raise a lot of revenue, even r- when you measure it against the size of the economy. Um, And then the money that we do raise uh, through taxes, we raise in a regressive way, unlike the federal government. Uh, And that means, you know, the highest uh, overall tax rates apply to the lowest income taxpayers. Um, And that's when you measure, you know, what percent of your total income goes to pay your state and local taxes. And the reason for that is pretty simple. We have uh, some of the highest uh, overall sales tax rates in the country here in Louisiana. We pay a lot of sales taxes and our income tax uh, overall is is very low compared to most states, uh, and a lot of that is due to the federal deduction. And so, you know, we we see what this amendment does. It gets rid of the federal income tax deduction, which is a very regressive kind of bad policy, but it gives all that money back in terms of rate reductions. Um, and so, you know, let us start with kind of what the amendment says. And I think Julie said at the at the uh outset, you know, the the way this is worded, uh, you know, I've seen some misleading <laughs> amendment language in my day, but this one probably takes the cake because uh, as Julie noted, if you read this, you're saying, well, I'm going to get a tax cut, you know, income tax cut and a new deduction when in fact it really is this kind of complex package of four bills um that that's tied to this. Um so, so our problems, you know, with this are, are a few. Uh, you know, number one, um, it's close to revenue neutral, but it's not revenue neutral. Uh, when you look at, at <laughs> the totality of these uh, four bills, the, the net effect when it's fully implemented is is about $27 million a year of, of re- revenue reduction to the state. Most of that comes from the franchise tax reduction, but we are talking about a, a package of bills that reduces the amount of money that we have to spend on education, infrastructure, public safety, whatever you think the priorities of the state should be. Um, Number two, the legislature at the last minute added uh, trigger amendments to this. Uh, And what the trigger amendments do essentially is say that if we have a really good revenue year, if we are exceed the revenue targets, um, then... The first priority is not paying teachers or reinvesting in higher education, but more uh income tax cuts and and so now the the Senate made some changes to the language that was sent from the House, so hitting these triggers are going to be fairly difficult. but we still have as a matter of state law that uh, you know first dibs on on a really good revenue cycle is going to be further tax cuts um Third, uh, the federal income tax deduction, as the amendment says, only gets out of the state constitution. Um, it it could certainly come back in state law if the legislature chose. As, as Greg rightly points out, uh, you know, some itemizers, some people, if this passes, are going to get some sticker shock because their taxes are going to go up. And so uh, I can almost guarantee that if this were to pass, there is going to be some pressure on the legislature to, to partially or fully reinstate this, uh, this very unorthodox tax um, uh, deduction. Um, another reason is this, uh, by putting the top income tax rate in the constitution, you're creating another barrier to raising revenue in those times when Louisiana needs to raise revenue. Uh, right now, you know, we are one of only a handful of states that have a two-thirds uh, majority requirement to raise any revenue at the state level. Most states don't have that. So our policy right now is, is to say it's a lot easier to, to cut services, to cut health care, to take away uh, a, a, a service that we pay for right now than it is to raise the revenue to pay for that service. And this, uh, you know, by putting this in the state constitution, makes that more difficult. Um, and then and then finally, there's kind of the whole premise of this, uh, which is we should do this so that we can move up on, on a list, uh, a ranking created by a conservative think tank in, in Washington, the Tax Foundation. Um, and there's simply no proof that if you move up uh, from the bottom of the uh, list to the middle of the pack, that it's going to somehow usher in some new era of economic growth. Uh, you know, we fell for this trick 13 years ago when Bobby Jindal convinced everybody that if we could just go get to number one on ethics uh, from the Center for Public Integrity, that everybody was going to look at Louisiana differently and come in and create jobs. Now we're being told that if we can just you know improve a few notches on the Tax Foundation's rankings. Uh, it's going to create this climate and everybody's going to move to Louisiana and we're going to have more economic growth. I, I think that the, the evidence just proves otherwise. Um, if we want to grow our economy, we need to uh, do a better job of educating people, creating safe streets, uh, investing in good universities. If we, can, uh, if we can make those kind of investments in our people, which frankly takes revenue, um, we think that's the way to um, to really create economic growth. So, uh, I applaud the, the legislature. I mean, Greg, Greg is, of course, absolutely right. It's not going to be a huge hit to, to revenues. Uh, most people aren't going to see a big fundamental change. But uh, for, for us at the Budget Project, where our focus is on low and moderate income families, um, it just doesn't meet the test of reform.
0: So one question I want to ask real quick, and we are running short on time, so I'm going to bounce to Greg just real quick before I go back over to Stephen. And, and that's that, we just announced a billion dollar surplus. Would that cause the income triggers if this had already been in place um, to trigger a rate reduction? Do you know um,
3: what, Possibly. John? I'd have to defer to... Jan's group Have tried to run some numbers on that in the past, looking at the past 10 or 12 years, and uh, came close in, in terms of simulating the past, but they didn't have this particular year in it uh a big a big increase like that would be i would say would make it easier to trigger the tr- to trigger the rate re- further rate reductions uh i don't think we should expect billion dollar surpluses on a sustained basis and, and that's i try to warn members today uh don't think this lasts forever because it, it it doesn't but yeah you get some surprising years and uh you get a rate trigger all because you had one good year that's that's possible uh, I will also say, though, as you cut rates, it'll make it harder to trigger them in the future because you will, you will reduce revenue. You will not raise revenue by cutting rates. You're going to reduce revenue. Uh, so the further, you know, if you trigger a rate cut, it gets It, hard, it makes it harder to, figure, to trigger the, the next rate cut. But these collections we're getting have nothing to do with the economy. I mean, this is a really an aberration uh, post-COVID e- and a COVID economy, aber- and fe- basically federal income support. Is what's generating this surplus, uh, yeah. and that's not going to last. So I wouldn't expect to see this kind of this kind of year again, but it obviously can happen because it has happened.
0: So um, just because we're running out of time, and I'm I'm like enough of a policy wonk to want to talk about this as long as possible, but I know viewers are like, "Whoa, wait a minute, this is going long." I want to. <laughs> to bounce over to Stephen um, for a moment, because I- I'm sure that Parr has some pretty distinct feelings about these, um, you know, these proposals in general. And I'd just like to hear him.
2: Oh, oh sure. I mean, I think, you know, of both these proposals, I think the ideas embodied in them are things that we pushed for for a long time. Uh, you know, pushing for a centralized sales tax collection like almost every other state. Uh, It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Getting rid of the federal deduction uh, on on your state income tax makes a lot of sense. And using it uh, to put in as close to revenue neutral way as possible uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, like you say, most states don't have full deduction uh, of your federal taxes. So as a general rule, if Louisiana finds itself in one of the few states doing something, um, it's probably not a good idea. And and so from that perspective, we, we, we definitely think getting rid of deduction and lowering the rates. And I know there was a lot of effort to lower the rates, not just overall to the state, but within each income bracket and each tax bracket to try and make it, uh, to deal with these issues of progressivity uh, and regressivity that that Jan brings up. Uh, So we definitely think this is a more stable, fair, um, you know, uh, simplified system, which is really what we're trying to aim with tax reform. Now there is a separate question as Jan brings up, what is the level of revenue we should have? And there's gonna be people that, will be happy that this has a, a modest tax cut for most people and, and, and Jan and his group feel like, look, we actually need more money. And that's, that's beyond what Par is gonna talk about. That is an issue of you know, values and ideology and each person can determine that themselves. Uh, but in terms of just looking at the structure itself, I think we're um, probably far better off with the structure uh, for both number one and number two. The issue is you know, other things that are coming in such as um, you know, how much revenue do you wanna raise? Uh, it, so I think those are broader issues, um, and, but I think each person has to determine that when they go into voting. For.
0: All right. So unless anybody's got something burning to say, I am going to move over to the corporate side of the equation. Um, the other, and I, I did put up the links to the PAR guide and to the budget project guide, and um, we'll also put that in the chats. Um, we also are need to look at the corporate side of the equation, and on this side slide, you can see um, that there are very few corporate uh, states that allow that corporate deduction in full, um, that there's really only two, um, so there again, we're outliers. And uh, when you look at this chart, um, this is one of the tax foundations maps, you can see that our highest corporate rate of 8% is well above everyone in our region. Um, but continuing on, the changes that we are looking to make that are inherent in the what's called the statutory companion piece to this constitutional amendment are that we would decrease the rates from what you see here in the current structure from four, five, six, seven, and eight which is kind of a lot on small little ranges, to 3.5 on the first 50,000. So that means that everybody in this group would be getting a deduction or a reduction, I mean. And then 5.5% on income above in between 50 and 150. So um, there again, a reduction for everyone and then 7.5 on anything over 150,000, which you can see that there's a small sliver of businesses that are actually gonna get a rate increase out of this. The people that are making between 150 and $200,000, and then everybody else would have uh, a tax decrease. Um, When you um, look at the, oh wait, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone forward. Let me go back to that one and let's talk a little bit more about that one because that's constitutional amendment number four, which I wanna touch on extremely briefly, Um, but you can see the the corporate income tax changes that are being suggested. First, I wanna just go, Jason, is the business community on board with this change?
1: Yeah, so the the business community is is obviously supporting amendment uh, number two as well. I will tell you uh, and I'm sure Greg could opine on this for days that when you're talking about the volatility of revenues from the corporate arena versus the individual, it's 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 much different. And I'll tell you it also took just a compromise with inside of of the of industry and the business community to get to this and 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 look, we all want simplification. I think that that theme uh, should not be overlooked here you see five rates over there, we're going to three, we're getting rid of the federal or moving away from the federal income tax deduction. It it is moving towards a more simple system. But when you're talking about trying to pair the corporate income tax changes with the franchise tax, uh, I mean, you're going to be talking about impacting corporate taxpayers differently uh, across the board. We were, as you were mentioning, we were hearing that some, you know, may not have much franchise tax, but, Pay more in the corporate income tax arena and vice versa. Uh, But the idea was to try to uh, simplify as well as the policy of uh, really phasing out a harmful tax that very few states have and putting us on that path while doing all of that in a revenue neutral manner, which was a, which was an extremely tough, uh, tough exercise. But this is, this is where we, where we landed. And I do believe that, uh, you know, this is a good start in terms of just improving our simplification.
0: So, so Greg, um, what businesses are likely to pay more as a result of this tax change and what businesses well, are no, going to pay less? In, in,
3: the, in the structure, the, the corporate income tax overall is actually raised. And it's what's used to pay for, I mean, the focus seemed to be on reducing the franchise tax. The, the, the two corporate taxes, income and franchise, actually turn out with a net 27 or so million dollars of increase, or excuse me, net decrease. We were cutting the franchise tax more than we're raising the income tax. We are raising the corporate income tax here, and many, many of the firms will see a corporate income tax increase many, many, many of the firms will see a reduction in their corporate franchise tax. That seemed to be most important to uh, the advocates of of the bill. Uh, The number one thing to understand about corporate taxation here really is that the vast majority of the tax is paid by a very small number of very large firms. 80 to 85 plus percent of both taxes are paid by the top one to 2% firms. And by top, I mean the biggest those with the largest net income in the many millions of dollars or the largest amounts of taxable income which is their equity taxable income in the many millions of dollars Uh, most businesses in the state don't pay much corporate income or franchise tax at all now it's highly concentrated that's why it was so difficult to lower the top rate from eight you could only go down to 7.5 Nearly 90% of the entire corporate income tax, tax base is held and shows up entirely within the 8% bracket. It doesn't pay anything but 8%, whereas for most of us, I pay a little, a little bit of income on 2%. I have some income that gets hit by four, and some income gets hit by six. But for in the corporate side, it's a lot different kind of taxpayers. As Jason asked about profile, there's no profile here. Two firms with nearly the same Louisiana net income would have dramatically different income statements, balance sheets, and Louisiana tax situations. Um, not so much with individuals. Um, so this, this it does make it, you have fewer brackets a, and you've broadened the base, but you are in fact uh, uh, raising the corporate income tax effective tax rate. So you could lower the corporate franchise tax effective tax rate or ag- overall more. Uh, and that's why we ended with a negative twenty-seven million dollars, in, in the whole package, the PI, the personal income tax side is only like a plus six hundred thousand. That's we're talking about. We're you know we're messing around with three and a half four billion dollars worth of tax. That's that's zero. Yeah.
0: So, um, <clears throat> Stephen, why would the business the business community would be supportive of this in general and Policy groups would tend to be supportive of this in general because of the franchise tax swap.
2: Well, that's that's an additional thing. I think that just in general, you're seeing more simplification. Uh, As pointed out, you're having reduction of the the number of brackets. You're getting rid of the um, uh, the federal deduction, which again you're getting reductions and lowering brackets. Though in this case, it's not as much lowering the brackets, but it's more getting rid of the franchise tax, which is an additional reason. Um, because the franchise tax I said it's more of a tax on assets as opposed to a tax on income. Uh, and, and and generally, most people see that as a, a sort of pernicious tax, because um, if you have a lot of assets, but you didn't make money, you're, you're still got to pay the taxes on it. Uh, and it's just sort of up to you to figure out how to pay it. Um, so it, it, and I think the, the core is trying to get the simplicity and the stability by getting rid of the, um, the deduct, state deduction for federal taxes paid. Uh, that it also then also... Uh, redux- reduces. And this also has a trigger you know, and we should also talk about um, for reducing franchise tax initially and then over time. Um, it's sort of an extra bonus um, that it gets to do something that makes sort of a, a, a bad tax less. Um, but I think even without that, it's still a generally overall good tax reform in terms of making a simple, fair system. Um, now, to go, you know, to sort of beyond subsequent when before, this is where you see the bulk of the is the $27 million. And so if you're sort of leaning against this to begin with and says, hey, look, I think that $27 million and that that happens in about three years when all this sort of works out. Um, you know, is this a big problem? We won't have, uh, uh, in three years, we won't have that money to spend. Um, then, uh, then you know, then that's, again, someone of personal values. But putting aside levels of taxation, uh, you know, if you just look at the overall simplicity uh, and, and stability from getting rid of that deduction, I think it's, uh, you know, putting aside those issues of values, uh, you know, from an uh, overall view of how tax structure should be a uh, 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 move forward.
0: Great. And, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the basic tenets of taxation-like theory is having that wherewithal to pay you know, which is if you have the income, you have the wherewithal to pay. And that's why income tax is considered to be fair in that regard. With franchise tax, one of the things that I've heard uh, echoed in this uh, conversation is that you don't necessarily have the wherewithal to pay if your assets are tied up, if your money's tied up in assets. But Jan, I'd like to hear from you and if you have any thoughts on this before we move on to um, Amendment Number 4 briefly.
4: Um, you know, the corporate side of this was not where our big concern. I think, uh, you know, I, I have no particular love for the franchise tax uh, except to the extent that it brings in revenue to the state. and And as others have pointed out, it is... Uh, you know that is where the the revenue loss comes in um, and and so you know i i am mm-hmm. uh, I would point out that you know capital heavy uh industries in Louisiana, which we're probably talking mostly about manufacturers um, already benefit from the most lucrative uh, uh, tax benefit anywhere in the country, the Industrial Tax Exemption Program. So if, if you are a manufacturer uh, coming to Louisiana and maybe you don't have show a profit one, one year, um, you are still benefiting from a, a just incredibly lucrative, even with the reforms that this governor has ushered in, uh, giving some local control, it is still an incredibly lucrative uh, a break. Um, so, so, and I think that would apply to a lot of of capital heavy industries. You know, we see a lot of projects coming into Louisiana. Um, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, um, construction jobs associated with them, and then you know, a hundred permanent jobs. Um, and so, uh, I think if if you are making those kind of investments, uh, that that's good. Uh, but you know, I, I it wouldn't break my heart if you pay a little bit more taxes on on that capital. So um, uh, if it could help support local needs.
0: Right. So I mean, you know, what we've tried to bring you today on this topic is just a really balanced kind of thoughtful. Evaluation of what's before the voters and I know that Elevate Louisiana does plan on um, issuing uh, some opinions on our own and uh, the results of this panel will be part of our process. Um, before we completely um, move on because we are going to have a Q&A with a few folks um, at the end of this, I would like to briefly and I'm just going to ask one guy. Greg Albrecht, (laughs) Um, what he thinks about this um, amendment number four, which we've got a number of statutory dedications in Louisiana. um, And these monies, it it says, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, Greg could probably tell us how many of them there are, but there's a lot. And, you know, it's everything from reefs to, you know, road infrastructure. But um,
3: it's nearly 400.
0: For yeah. special funds, right? And so, you know, what are the ramifications of Louisiana passing or not passing this amendment number four? And what well, does
3: it, it do? It in in a in a down in a downturn where we're having to cut the general fund and the non-protected sources uh, or budget items that are budgeted from the general fund. This would allow us to say, well, let's cut. A greater amount, or allow us to cut a greater amount from the, the protected funds, the statutory dedicated funds, and move that money to the general fund, or diminish the reductions from the general fund, uh, five to ten percent. I don't know if you're changing the world here. We don't trigger this five percent. I don't know if we've triggered it. I, I maybe Stephen can know. We may have triggered it once,
0: twenty fifteen, twice
3: at most in all the years. It's been there for a number of years. It's I don't not
2: think we've ever triggered it for. The ensuing fiscal year. It's always yeah, been the current, yeah. fiscal, so the current fiscal year. So the current
3: fiscal year, because you're in the middle of the year, and you're all of a sudden you're hit with a disaster. You're desperate, but uh, so it would give you more flexibility and allow because we right now we protect certain areas that are are fully funded by dedication, unless you go in and do something with a statute, they don't suffer any any consequences to a sharp downturn in the economy and the and the tax receipts and everything gets loaded onto the general fund portion which is almost entirely education k-12 through and higher ed mostly higher ed because k-12 through has got its own constitutional protections and health care and these other areas get protected so it provides some additional flexibility and that's what they're offering there, some to, to to spread the pain if you have to and that's what it's doing so um
0: yeah, I just wanted to touch on that one a little bit because I've actually had several requests to add this, that one into this program, but I knew that amendment number two would take us quite a bit of time. Um, and for those of you that are gonna stick around to um, ask some questions of the panelists, we're uh, looking forward to that, but this concludes the discussion of Louisiana's decision 2021, the constitutional amendments one and two and four. Uh, I hope that this information helps you to make an informed vote on November 13th and I invite you to check out Elevate Louisiana's website to links to the information discussed during this program and please share this videocast on your social media and with your friends and family to help all Louisianans to get this important information. I'd also like to extend an invitation to those of you who have a heart for policy in Louisiana to check out membership in Elevate Louisiana. You can find more information at elevatela.org and finally check out our rescheduled September, second uh, annual summit and join us to learn more about politics, policy, and what's needed to move Louisiana forward. Mm-hmm.